Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. So thank you, dude. I appreciate you coming on the show. And as I kind of, uh, well, actually, as I shared with you, I had Mr. Durham on on Tuesday to talk yeah, about good time. the subject. It was great. I mean, I love him to death and I know you do too. And he was my first friend ever on the podcast. You are now my second. So this hopefully will be a, uh, a theme where I get my overly educated friends to help me understand the complexity of uh, this thing we called life. So yeah. So thanks, dude. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Cool. So <laughs> you read the book? I and, did. Uh, I read every I saw- page. And for everyone on my, my, all 10 of my listeners, actually, sorry, I have 12 now. Uh, the Coddling of the American Mind is the book we're discussing. This is part two. Brad is a friend first. Second, he is an academic. And Brad, you have to correct me on this if I screw it up, but PhD in Shakespearean literature. Yep. And uh, former instructor at Berkeley. Yep. yep. And, uh, and then a high-end executive in the field of marketing and advertising for the last 20 years? Well, I don't know if I've been, uh, I don't know if I've ever been high-end about anything. But I, I, <laughs> okay. You were the I, former editor-in-chief of the IAB that you just, are you still there? Didn't you did room around the well, campfire? We're recording this, we're recording this on July 30th. Literally uh, one minute before I came on with you, I sent my so long and thanks for all the fish okay. email. That's what I heard. I heard that was happening. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I'm the former editor-in-chief of the Interactive Advertising Bureau, former editor-in-chief of iMedia Connection, which was a daily media property in this space, the digital media and advertising space where you and I yeah, met, yeah. Yeah. Uh, former chief strategy officer and senior research fellow at the Center for the Digital Future at USC Annenberg, yeah. where I'm still a strategic advisor. So that's the other kind of academic um, uh, credential that I have, um, I'm on a bunch of boards, um, uh, you know, advise a bunch of companies. Um, so yeah, I'm, I get around. That, that's exactly my point. And so what I wanted to do is I read this book and as I shared with professor Durham on Tuesday, I got it originally because I'm a daddy. Mm-hmm. So the Coddling of the American mind really talked to, and the, the subtitle is the good intentions how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And so they start out the book by focusing on three big things. And I'll frame this again for the listeners. For those who've listened to the first piece, I'm sorry for the redundancy, but the untruth of fragility, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. That's the first untruth that the book is framed with. The second... And I just want to say like, off the bat, the book annoyed me because what kind of a word is untruth? I mean, like, well, really? like, like they couldn't go for lie or myth, but like, you know, like two words that adequately or if not actively convey what they're trying to go for without this, you know, overly Germanic, un, like untruth, like never use two syllables when one will do. So anyway, I'm oh, sorry. But we, can, uh, we can start there with the agreement because I don't, it was hard for me to even discern what they were talking about. The untruth of emotional reasoning, which is always trust your feelings. And the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle of good and evil people. So 
that's the framing. And the fragility piece starts out with kids. And so they talk about something, obviously we've heard about helicopter parents in the history of our life. And sure. as a daddy of uh, a nine and a seven-year-old, or actually nine and eight, Cannon just turned eight last Saturday. I saw some of our behavior, Debbie and I, in this, in the sense that free-range parenting, it's very difficult for us who live in San Francisco to say, hey guys, <laughs> go outside and play. You know, the cable car is running right underneath my bay window here. And uh, so there's some, you know, I think genuine concern for what my wife and I have done with our parenting. But what they were talking about, and that's kind of the beginning of the book and not a huge piece of what I want to focus on because I think the bigger piece is like what's happening with our adults now, right? That's where the book starts to get into. And then the, the third stage I kind of want to talk about is that these young men and women who are coming out of some of our top universities across the country have a very different purview of the world based on their upbringing and technology and, and uh, a very left uh, academic body. And that's another piece that they talk about in here is the, and we can get into that, but that's, those are the things that I wanted to chat about. And then specific, what, what were your thoughts on the child rearing early pieces of this book? Was there anything that jumped out for you there that, you know, you were as uh, adamant about as the untruth were? <laughs> uh, I think that, so like my, my big statement about the book, because ultimately the theme of the book is about college. And when they're talking yes. about childhood, they're talking about the way that their perception of um, uh, how we're perhaps leaning in too hard on our ability to, you know, constantly be in contact with our kids uh, is not necessarily serving the ultimate goal of pushing, you know, adults out into the world who are going to be productive, happy members of society. Got it. But the real reason they're talking about it is because they see this crisis in the academy where, you know, uh, you know, entitled, uh, wealthy, you know, upper middle class white dudes are suddenly having to think more carefully about the things that they say to their yep. students. Right. That's that's the, the complaint. Right. In the most cynical possible way. Now, my feeling about that, my sort of my big takeaway from the book is that the problem with this argument is that it's like. When you're dealing with someone who has like blood steadily leaking from his neck, and you're you're and, and the, this poor person is holding holding the his you know holding the, the blood in, and your response is to say, you know, your lips look a little bit dry. Would you like a chapstick? I have some chapstick. Right? The problems with the academy today are so much more vast and deep than anything that they talk about, um, and so. You know, like that was the that my my big complaint about the book. It's like I just felt like it was so precious about their issues. When it comes to kids, my kids are a little older. Uh, I've got a twenty year old and a sixteen year old, and absolutely right because we have the ability to text them at any time, and they have the ability to text us at any time. You know, the the default presumption is, yeah, we should be in contact. Um, you know, we still, even with our 20-year-old, you know, there are times we're like, hey, where are you going? And she's like, you know. Um, <laughs> Dad. And, and, and I'm, I'm trying to reframe the conversation for, from, you know, controlling parents to 
can you, let's just be good roommates, right? Like, you know, if you're, if I were, when I was 20 and living in college, if I were going to be screwing off somewhere and I wasn't going to be back real late, well, my roommate was my friend and I didn't want him to be worried about me, you know? So I, and this is before cell phones, this is in the eighties. And so, you know, so like, I want to reframe that conversation, but with the book and with the idea around kids and free range kids, yeah. You know, I, I think that uh, helicopter parenting, uh, intervening too quickly, um, you know, uh, not um, not allowing your kids to experience failure because you'll learn so much more from your failures. As by the way, uh, you convey so uh, majestically in your book, Joey. I mean, like your book, Joey, Somebody Confessions of a Recovering Douchebag, which I was so delighted to to read and review. Uh, and be a small, small part of this creation. Um, I mean, you know, you just fearlessly talk about the extraordinary number of times in which you fucked up, right? And what you learned <laughs> yeah. from yeah. those things. And if we yeah. protect our kids or our employees, right, or our friends, if we protect people from the consequences of their action or from learning how to negotiate the turbulence of life, then yes, we're, we're, that can have a, a downside. However, you know, it's not in a vacuum. Uh, we have more connectivity than we ever have before, and people are using it. And so, uh, you know, parents need to be um, aware of things. Like, here's the thing that, uh, what was it? What's the other guy's name? It's Luke, uh, Luke uh, Lukianoff. Yeah. Lukianoff and hate. Well, you know, well, here's one word that never shows up in their entire book. Cyberbullying. Cyberbullying is an actual real thing. You take kids and you uh, remove the constraints of teachers, you know, watching or people overhearing things. You put them in a frictionless environment where they can be nasty to each other and they will be. Uh, and they are. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, like a parental response to, to these things, cyberbullying, you know, like it would have been nice if they had talked about that. Uh, when they were talking about so many other things. And, you know, the there are just so many uh, ways in which I feel like the book kind of ignored the larger issues um, or trivialized them. So, you know, there are some statistics that say, for example, this is getting back to college for a moment, because that's sort of what the book is concerned with. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there's, they're, they're kind of, count, they're saying everybody is so precious. Everybody is so ready to be offended. You know, everybody's complaining about what other people say. We really have to do something about that. And sure, that's true. But um, there's also relatively recent data that says that one out of four or one out of five women will be sexually assaulted during their time uh, on campus, uh, on college campus. One out of five? Yeah, one out of five or more. Right. Shit. It's a shocking, shocking number. And it's not news. This this research has been around for a while. But in the wake of Me Too, in the wake of, you know, the social justice movement about which they are uh, so careful to talk about, um, you know, these things are now getting more of an airing. Like I the first time I encountered a trigger warning, I didn't know what the heck was going on. Uh, I was. um some of the people who are listening to this might know, I, my wife is, is a professor, uh, and she, at the time, got a Fulbright to work in Norway for a year. So we rented out the house, packed up the kids. The dog had just died, which was convenient. Uh, we went to Norway, uh, and my 25th 
college reunion happened at that time. And I happened to be in the States at a conference. So I went and I went and I belonged to the nerdiest fraternity outside of the one in the movie, The Revenge of the Nerds. So my (laughs) fraternity was a co-ed literary society. Right. So it was not a let's let's bash some let's let's, what do they used to say? Let's bash some heads and bang some babes. That wasn't us. Um, And and so I went to the meeting. No cake stands during the. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I went to a meeting and and they're doing a reading of something. And the guy says, "Okay, here are the trigger warnings. And so it talks about sexual assault. This is 2015. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that so makes three, sense. Yeah. Three years before they, they they were the book went to press. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what the heck is a trigger warning? Like I had no idea. Um, and it seemed a little weird, but it didn't bother me. I didn't think, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you say to someone, hey, this deals with sexual assault at one point, that that might be all that the person is going to focus on as opposed to thinking about an imbalance. But if one in five women or possibly more have experienced rape or sexual assault on campus and they're sitting in a, in a meeting, I think it's probably fair to warn them uh, that that is uh, a topic that's going to be uh, discussed. Okay. And so my question then, and I'm going to actually, actually preface this. I, when I first read the book, I was angry and I agreed with, uh, Jonathan Haidt, and maybe it's because I have an intellectual crush on him. So his first book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good sure. People Are Divided by Religion and Politics, actually changed fundamentally how I view my conservative friends to a point where it helped me understand what they believe and why they believe it based mm-hmm. on psychology. And they have you know the five personality types and, and they have these really cool um, predictive models that talk to what you believe in order and conscientiousness and sanctity and things like that, which I thought was amazing. So when I started reading this, I had that bias. And then since then, I've listened to, I don't know how, I mean, I've probably done a couple hundred hours of research on this and listening to like Intelligence Squared is a really cool platform in Britain. And Jonathan Haidt and Greg were both invited to talk about this. There was, and I don't mean just on the safe space, but like DEI and you know all the other pieces and parts to it. And as I as I researched it more and more, I started moving away from their their purview. Mm -hmm. I was really attached to it in the beginning, and then even with uh, my conversation with John on Tuesday, he helped me understand too what how his professorship at USF and his students and his experience was very different. And he actually did some really cool, even almost qualitative research with some of his professors across the country and kind of smattering of different areas just because he wanted to kind of understand the the geographical differences and then most of which were liberal, which he admitted to. But they didn't really experience... They He mentioned something about white privileged kids was a piece in part that came from a lot of the other professors he talked to. But I am kind of, I just wanted to preface that because I, <laughs> I have come further away from their opinion. And as it relates to this specific topic, if you announce in a history class, because that's one of the examples they give, that history itself is very dark. Our mm-hmm. history, world history, American history, whatever, has you know, genocide and and rape and inequality and torture and, you know, just bad stuff. And so that's where you're starting to 
what does the trigger warning do? I guess is my question. So if you're offended by or triggered, what do you then do? Does the professor say, hey, this is what we're going to talk about today. And for those of you that are very sensitive to this issue, do they let them leave the classroom? Or what does that look like? Oh, it beats the hell out of me. I mean, yeah. but, but I mean... Because that's where I'm saying, where do you, that's for me, that's still where I don't understand how that works. And, and Professor Durham said, you know, Joey, I think that's ridiculous. If you're studying history and you're triggered by trauma, then you need to reassess what you're studying and then maybe you need some therapy. And, and by the way, that's where... I think I posited that. I don't know if Doctor if John said that, but the one thing that Greg Lukanyoff comes up with, which I agreed with, specific to trigger warnings, was he personally had suffered MDD, uh, major depressive disorder, at an earlier phase of his life, in which he went to therapy, institutionalized therapy, and in that they began his homework with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. which for the audience it's. Uh, at least a brief example of it is that there's something called catastrophizing when you suffer from mental illness or anxiety disorder and where you say, if I flunk this test, I'm then going to... My life is over. I'm, yeah, I'm going to be evicted from school. I will then be homeless and I will live in a, <laughs> in a tent down by the river kind of thing. And so what they talk about is owning the fear. And that's something that you talk to, you know, in, even in my memoir, I talk about how I wanted to or I continued to put my head in the dragon's mouth, right, mm -hmm. of fear. And what he was saying and what his corollary was had to do with CBT because all the training that he went through to get out of his triggers and out of his depressionary state was that you needed to deal with it almost like microdosing of sure. the problem. And so it goes against that theory. And that was his argument in the book, which I actually thought grokked really well with me in the sense that, are we overprotecting college kids in that sense? Because these are adults, right? They're 18 to 22 and, and or older, depending. And at the same time, we have 18, 19-year-old kids in war. Sure. So they're part of our military. They're not, they're not being treated similar. And, and actually the opposite. In boot, in boot camp, they break you down to the collective and then build you back up in, in their own vision of what you, they need you to be. And so there's no trigger warnings. It's like, you do what you say, do what we say, or you, we throw you in the brig. Well, but wait, hold on. Uh, yes and no, right? Like the military, I am not a military person. You should have yeah, uh, Tom Deerline uh, on yeah, the I, podcast. I, I uh, he's a, another friend of ours who uh, was, uh, was a war hero. Um, yes. uh, um, just talked to him a couple of days ago. Um, there's always a line. Right. And the line moves uh, over the course of history. Now, in the military, there's a highly rigid caste structure that people get inserted into and learn their place. And to the extent that they can navigate that structure and hierarchy, they thrive or they don't. Right. And because you sign up for two plus years, there is, you know, I often say to people, it's not the army you know, about a job that they take. I'm like, if it doesn't work out, you can quit. But when it's the army, it is the army and you're stuck for a couple of years yeah. short of some, you know, medical discharge. But even in the military, over the course of the last handful of years, we've seen a growing awareness of sexual assault in the military. Yes. A lot of things that, you know, are the darker side of a structure when people have an immense amount of power 
over other people, how do you navigate abuses of that power? Uh, today, this morning, as I was driving my son, driving back from dropping my son and rowing, he's a rower, he's like six foot one and made of bricks. Um, you know, there's a, a story about a 91-year-old former bishop in D.C. who is at, at 91 finally being sort of brought to trial for having um, sexually abused lots of people over the course of his career. So there's even in the military, there are lines where that you don't cross. Um, so I, I don't I just sort of like I want to you know uh, complicate your exception here because we're seeing growth, uh, uncomfortable growth uh, in a lot of different places as people are starting to grapple with the complexities of having, you know, a, well, just the complexities of being a person because uh, it's not easy. Yeah, yeah I, I just and I think that can go into. So the original understanding of safe space. And I don't know. I have it written down here somewhere as far as an actual definition, but I think it had a lot to do with people that marginalized communities on campus, uh, black, indigenous people of color, trans, LGBTQ, those groups, as an example, felt like they needed some space if they were being harassed or bullied or any of those places. And one of the things that, and this is an example too, where Brown University, which I know is your former alma yeah. mater, is that they actually had cookies and milk and Play-Doh and coloring books and calm music. And this was also for ideological and emotional harm. So if someone on the campus was wearing a red hat and preaching the GOP mantra and things like that, they were wounded. And this is just, these are, examples in the book. That was for me a problem. And I don't know where the difference is because if my boys came back from their freshman year at college and told me that they needed to go and have milk and cookies, you know, because some person next to them was wearing a red hat and preaching Tucker mm -hmm. Carlson, I'd be like, okay, guys, come here and give me a hug. I love you. And I'm sorry I failed you as a father, right? <laughs> I, I just, I don't, I'm, and now I think, I don't know exactly know how we're going to remedy this, but I, I don't know where I screwed up, right? Because this is, this is crazy. That's crazy that you need protection from a Donald Trump, you know, aficionado or so like that, that's kind of what I'm trying to get to here because I, I, I understand that if you are suffering in your college environment for being black or gay or lesbian or trans, it's cool that they found a place for you, but isn't that more therapy? <laughs> like that, that's, that's actually to me where it's as opposed to milk and cookies, they have someone there that is, you know, a trained therapist is like, Oh, this, this makes sense to me. Yeah. Let's just stick with the emotional ideological piece because that part irritates me. It really, that's like, ah, grow up. It's like, take some pain, understand it. Or you don't listen or go ask them questions, right? Try to try to combat the ideology. Try to ask questions of this person. Like, do you really believe what you're saying? Yes, I do. And this is why, but great. And that's what college campuses are about, you know, is, is different ideas and cultures and ideologies and everything. That's, it's supposed to be this mixing of, you know, and, and sometimes abhorrent ideas. 
Sure. So, so like, where does that, where does that sit with you? The ideology and emotional harm thing versus like the LGBT black community that I think does make some sense in my life, uh, or at least makes some sense to me to have a safe space. I, uh, I don't think that there is any calculus for pain. I think that people have pain and different people respond to different pain differently. And so, you know, there's a lack of empathy in, and you're an extraordinarily empathetic guy, right? And so I think that you're, you're, I think generally speaking, we are empathetic towards individuals more than we're empathetic towards uh, situations or collectives. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so if you can see the individual, <clears throat> give the individual the benefit of the doubt. This person was, uh, I mean, I don't even love triggered, right? But, you know, this yeah. person, something happened to this person and she or he found it really quite disturbing. Um, and wouldn't it be nice if that person, uh, during a time when there's so much instability in the world, you know, I live in uh, in Portland, Oregon, where our homeless population is is increasing. Seems to be increasing by orders of magnitude. I mean, like, is what isn't it nice that at a place like Brown, which is not uh, not cheap, uh, that no. there might be a place for people to go and explore these things? Now, if it's the end of the conversation, that's a problem. If it's the beginning of the conversation, well, why are you feeling this way? And there's cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm more interested in myself personally in dialectical behavioral therapy. Yeah, me too. Which is about you know people having conversations around these things as opposed to it all just being in your head. Yeah. Um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is about intervening in your own self-talk. And there's right. a brilliant woman named Lisa Beldman Ferret who wrote a book about the nature of emotions. And one of the things she talks about is the more you can, the more granular you can be as you describe your emotions, uh, the more likely you are to be the master of your emotions. And, and that's a really interesting. And I actually like, cause I, you don't, I don't think you know about this about me. Uh, I don't think I suffer from anxiety disorder or, cat- or catastrophic thinking, but I am cursed every single waking moment of my life with the worst case scenario. And I have to go, okay, hold on. What's going on there? And like, how realistic is this? And, um, and I fight against it. So let me give you an example. Um, uh, I, I swim, you know, one of my main sources of exercise is swimming. And I was at the gym swimming the other day. And I was in lane, like the lane that was not immediately next to the, the edge, but one over and in between strokes, you know, I'm doing the breaststroke. I came up for air and I look up and there's like a kind of a chubby 10-year-old kid who's got his like six-year-old sister on his back. And he jumps into the pool, playful, delightful. In the moment that I saw him, by the way, people are coming and going to my house. So if you hear doors slamming, that's why. Uh, in the moment that he jumps into the pool, as the moment, which I see as I come up for a breath, I'm up, my head is up for a half a second. I see, oh gosh, if he didn't lean forward enough, if he just jumped straight into the pool, is his baby sister's back of her head going to connect with the concrete and then it's all over, right? Death, quadriplegia, something like that, right? And I, I saw that in a moment. And then as I'm continuing to swim in that lap, I'm like, well, do I say something to the kid? No, the kid's going to wonder why this freaky old guy is talking to him. Do I find the kid's 
parents mm. and talk to him, they're not going to appreciate this. No. You know, this is just my curse. This is my curse of seeing these things and then living with them and trying to then go like, well, what are the odds really? Right. And, 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 and so like that is like one of the things that tendency in my brain is, which makes me a good strategist, which is, you know, I see things that I'm like, well, how can it go wrong? Uh, you know, yeah. let's think about how it can go wrong. How realistic is that? And then from there, you also want to go, well, what's, you know, how can it go fantastically right? And you want to have that balance. But when it comes to, you know, your, I think, uh, you're being annoyed by, I think, uh, people, you know, treating people's emotional distress, p- taking it too seriously, um, you know, uh, which again, I'm not sure that's true. I think it's a question of like, what are you doing with that conversation? Um, the biggest, like, I don't think this, I just, I just don't care about safe spaces. You want to go play with Play-Doh, right? Go ahead. You know, like that kind of sounds like fun to me. It's, you know, and you don't want to, or you see something and you're offended by it and you leave and take space for yourself in order to, you know, figure out those things. Good, right? It's when people silence the person or say that person doesn't belong on campus or we're going to interrupt the person. Like that's where it starts to get dodgy. But even then, there's always a line. Right. It's a question, just a question of where you draw the line. I learned this in junior high school that, you know, there was a book that I, that the library didn't carry. Uh, I don't even remember what it was, but I marched into the headmaster's office. I went to this prestigious all boys school, the same school that Brian Bihar, who was your yeah. first guest, went to. At the time, it was called the Harvard, Harvard school. school for boys. Yeah. Yeah. Harvard School, yes, the Harvard School for Privileged White Boys. Uh, and, um, <laughs> now the Harvard Westlake School. Um, but I marched into Christopher Beresford's office. And I said, why is this book not in the library? And he said, he took, he, he didn't say, get out of my office, kid, which I was impressed by. He said, <laughs> he said look, shh, if the neo-Nazis then if this were to send us the books to put in our library, do you think we should? I said, no. He said, what about the Ku Klux Klan? If they sent us paraphernalia, should we have that in our library? Because you see, like, I have a duty to the community. And I said, oh, you know, and so, like, you know, what he taught me at age 12 was that, you know, like life is a series of decisions. People are put in the position of having to pick. Someone has to pick. It's not going to be perfect. Um, so, you know, do we want to invite the chairman of the neo-Nazi party to speak uh, at a university? Maybe, but why? You know, what's the intent behind it? Are you trying to have a conversation where you say, why do you believe this? You know, uh, Yeah, that's a big piece of the book, right? Is that it's, let's just say that we could agree that (laughs) emotional and ideological safe space for me, I think is, is a step too far. And when you talk about allowing different opinions, that's kind of where I also bristle. So your, your uh, other alma mater, Berkeley was in the book famously or infamously. In 2017, when Milo Yiannopoulos decided to come and talk. Right. And for anyone who doesn't know who Milo is, he is a right-wing... Scumbag. Former, for, yes, former editor for Breitbart, provocateur, troll, in my opinion, asshole. But I, I would welcome him to come and speak. 
Now, he was just banned from Twitter during this piece in the book. This is in 2017. It was right after Donald Trump was inaugurated. So there was a lot of tension on campus, uh, a lot of sad people. And regularly in Berkeley, another very, I've only gone to, well, I'm, I describe myself regularly as a commie pinko lefty Jew from Encino, California, and the schools I've went to reflect that. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and, you know, 1964, Berkeley was famous for the free speech and, and mm-hmm. understanding all of that. So that's the campus, which I think is a really nice case study. And again, they did a good job of, you know, choosing their case studies, but that in, had 1,500 students and employees of the university in protest, almost all of which statistically was nonviolent. But then there was 150 people that were categorized, not necessarily, you know, Antifa or anyone else, but these folks decided to vandalize the campus and they decided to beat people up. And as they chronicled in the book, there was a young lady with a MAGA hat on who wanted to go and represent. And she was sadly uh, maced, in the face, and then her boyfriend was beaten to the point where he was unconscious. And they filmed all of this, and then they posted it on on video on social media. And these were people that were employed at Berkeley, and they never received any punishment. They never received any. There was nothing legal. It caused a half a million dollars in damage. I mean, it was a, it was brutal, and it goes against exactly what they were just talking about. So if you Safe space-wise, you don't want people... You want to be able to have your opinion. You want to be able to share your opinion. Cool. In this case, Berkeley did everything wrong. Mm-hmm. Everything. And, and the same thing happened at Evergreen with Brett Weinstein. But just, let's, let's, not, let's, 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 let's just take a step back. Let's right. do that. I can't pronounce his last name. Milo Yiannopoulos? Yiannopoulos, yeah. yeah. Like, do you think he was upset by this? Or do you think he was like... Mission accomplished. I think he loved it. Right. Yeah. So like yeah. the mistake was like, really? Like this, like this is a person you're going to give a platform to? Like, what are the standards? And you know, you and so somebody thought it was a good idea. Nobody intervened. The inevitable happened. It's become more predictable that this will happen since the January 6th insurrection. But mm-hmm. you know, like things went badly. But statistically speaking. Like, if you think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of guest lectures that happen on campuses, university and college campuses all over this country every year, like, like how many ruckuses are we really talking about? Even their own statistics around depression and anxiety are affecting about, I think it was a 1% increase or less than 1% increase, you know, for girls. Does that mean that it's not tragic when a young person takes her or his life or tragic when someone is dealing with depression and not getting the help and resources that are available in the world because we have the knowledge, we have the technology, we have the pharmaceuticals. Yes, those things are sad, but do they, should they be, uh, you know, creating panic? Uh, Should we be describing an epidemic of depression, which does not exist? Right. Is there, you know, and, and how much of it can we can we reliably attribute to social media? How much can we reliably attribute to, to what I call the Crayola phenomenon, which is um, one of my children has mild ADHD. Right. And um, we when we first started to get a glimmer of this, we took the child to the pediatrician and the pediatrician basically had the pediatrician had the crayons you get at the Olive Garden. Right. 
right? You know, there was a red, a yellow, a green, and that's it, right? And the pediatrician said, well, try this med. And we tried that, and that really didn't work. And we tried the other one, and it didn't work. And, and finally, we got to a specialist, you know, a, a, practice, a psychopharmacologist, that person who uh, has the big box of Crayola. And her name's Bridget. And, um, and she's like, well, there are these two broad families and there's this and the other. And based on what you're describing, you know, I, th- I think we should not do what you were being given before, but let's try this thing over here. There was this level of nuance that was happening with, with the Crayola where she picked out the like magenta one. No, not this one. Right. And, you know, amazing results. And that happens again and again, where, you know, you, if you paint with an overly broad brush, if you only have the Olive Garden uh, crayons, then you're not going to get much done. Uh, life is just more nuanced than that. Now, I will also say that, you know, that doesn't mean that you can kind of quibble around everything and not everything is a pathology. Not everything is a pathology. Uh, you know, like sometimes there are just, there are like the thing where I disagree with them is the third one where they're saying us versus them. Right. Like, you know, you don't want to presume that it's good versus evil. And I'm like, okay, I understand that. You don't want to demonize the people who are on the other side. If you can empathize with the people who are on the other side, then you might actually get, uh, make some progress. You just look yeah. at uh, the federal government right now. You look at the Senate and you're like, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of empathy happening. That's one of the great things about having Biden as our president, which is that, you know, he's worked for his whole career across the aisle. On the other hand, what uh, Luki and often hate don't acknowledge is that there are evil people in the world. They're, they may not think of themselves as evil, but nonetheless, there are bad people out there. And, you know, there are people you can't reason with. There are people who uh, will not treat you like a human being. There will be people who feel that it is their God-given right to uh, do horrible things to other people. There are, there are people who define humanity so narrowly and essentially by looking in the mirror and saying, people who do not look like me do not count. Um, those people, sometimes you just have to give up on people. And- I totally agree. But the, what I was saying where they failed is that they didn't prosecute anybody with objective evidence to battery <laughs> it wasn't it was there was there was nothing there that they should it and milo maybe maybe milo was a bad idea and I'll, I'll i'll give you that but ben shapiro also happened same thing happened and when ben was invited and i also think ben you know i disagree with almost everything ben shapiro says but i don't think he's a bad human being mm-hmm. i really don't i think that he believes what he believes because of his upbringing he's a very smart highly educated young man, Harvard lawyer, the whole bit. And when he came to the campus, they had to do the same thing. $600,000 worth the extra security because people were losing their shit that this man should not be speaking. And they, they brought up the same thing with him they did with Milo, which was his words are violence. So if speech is violence... Yeah, that's baloney. I understand that, but that's how they justified the actual violent retort. So right. when they said... And this is when they were talking and said, if Milo gets up there and talks, we're going to have broken bodies because what he says is going to cause broken bodies. That's an actual quote. And if he does that, he's going to harm my physical and mental well-being forever. These are the people that are talking in the book. And I was like, well, I don't know, man. We don't know that. So the idea of bringing this provocateur dick bag to the campus, fine. I'll give you that. But then where do you, I don't think Ben Shapiro is a, as much as I disagree with him, I don't think he's a bad human being to begin with. 
I think he's bringing him to the campus is a good idea <laughs> because that's exactly what college campuses are supposed to do. It's like, hey, look at this guy on the real far right who believes what he believes everything you guys don't believe. <laughs> so do your job, listen. And if you don't like it, if it triggers you and you need safe space, well, don't go, right? Don't go to the campus or that day or don't go to that auditorium that day. Go and listen to this guy. So here's what he has to say. Ask him questions. And then ask yourself questions like, well, can I understand why he believes what he believes? And if, to your point, if someone's just a, you know, a virulent racist asshole who says and invokes violence, yeah, you don't bring that dude to the campus. I'm, I'm cool with that. But Ben Shapiro's not that dude. And neither is Charles Murray and neither are a lot of the other examples they give in the school. Charles Murray is a bigot and an idiot from his book, but it's at the idea, even the woman at Middlebury who wanted, she, there's a, another professor who wanted to go view him talk so she could ask him questions about the bell curve, right? I, so that's my point is that the ideology, which is a big discussion we can get into, ideology can be very dangerous. That's another premise to this book. And so the collectivism of Berkeley in this case, where if you don't like the person, you shout out or shout down that person and it worked. So that's another thing you know, that this happened and these young men and women are like, that worked. Let's do it again. And so then Shapiro comes in, boom, you know, rinse and repeat. Fuck you, Ben, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then so it's like, okay, well, that's not a good thing. I don't think that's good at all. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm hardly going to sit here and say that it's a good thing to have people silenced and shut down. Um, you know, I, I concur, right? I mean, I also just think like, it's a pendulum that's going to swing back and forth. When I was a graduate student at Berkeley, they bulldozed part of People's Park and everybody lost their bananas. And, you know, and they, you know, the city was trying to reclaim this piece of very valuable land, which had been occupied by the homeless and to this day is occupied by the homeless. It didn't work. There was a big hullabaloo. The park is still there. Um, you know, I think they built a bathroom, which the, the homeless population actually likes uh, there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I concur, like life is messy and it's going to continue to go backwards and forward. Um, it used to be that there was, there were no mechanisms for people to object. Right. And, and now there are too many mechanisms for people to object, but you know, we're going to, it's going to swing back. I can't imagine that the kind of political correctness and oversensitivity is is going to continue indefinitely. Um, but I also think that we, a good if, point. if we take a step back and we think, let's look at, you know, the people who we're talking about, right? That, you know, millennials have just been shafted by circumstance and by our inadequate response to that circumstance. First with 9-11 and with the global financial collapse, now with you know, basically a year and a half indoors. And, you know, there have been, you know, decent research saying that the millennials are never going to catch up. They'll never recover from this um, economically. Um, so you, you look at the folks who are there and, you know, then you have Gen Z who came into the world. At least the millennials can look at their parents and grandparents and go, oh, once there was a 
kind of narrative where you graduate from school, whether it's high school, by the way, only a third of Americans go to college, right? Like we, you know, two thirds of this country do not go to college and they still are worthy human beings who live good lives and raise families and have a shot at happiness, right? Like there's, like I'm as educated as you can possibly be. I do not think that that makes me a good person. That doesn't make me a moral person. That only makes me an educated person. And what I do with that is the the criterion by which I can be judged worthy, wise, good, any of those sure. things. And I'm still making it up as I go along. I'm 53. Um, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. but well, no, we're, I was just talking about the sense that it's shutting down speech is a problem for me. And even if you don't like it. And then we could actually extrapolate this out then. With the safe space idea and shouting things down idea, part of this book's thesis is that, and I, as a coach, I'm a leadership coach for some media executives. And this is anecdotal, but they are experiencing this with the younger hires. Mm-hmm. So the kids that in the book they refer to as the iGen, which were born right. in 1995, grown up on Gen Z, yeah. social and Gen Z, and and those those people, young men and women, are more sensitive, right? Everything from microaggressions to triggers to pronouns. Obviously, it's a big discussion in the DEI side of the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Why do we care? Well, I'll get to that because that's another question I have for you. But they're they're saying that HR is there's more complaints, there's more needs uh, to be put in place to buttress a lot of this ideology, if you will. And so the question then begs: Do are we going to see safe spaces at work? Yeah, and we should. Okay, so that that okay okay, what does that look like? It looks, look, I'm just coming off being a senior leader, leader you know, part of the senior leadership at, uh, at Ivy for a year and a half. And generally, I may be flattering myself, you know, but like the number of people who have been crowding my inbox and like booking last meetings with me, I think I was a relatively popular figure there. I worked really hard. I try to see people. Uh, I try to see people as people, not just their job function. Um, you know, I'm in touch with most people who've ever worked for me, you know, as probably because I started my career as a teacher, right? So I'm, I'm interested as, a, as an employer, as a manager, you know, I believe that when you're a manager, you are not only the manager of that person's day-to-day activities, but you're the steward of that person's career while that person is working for you. And yet, nonetheless, even with my good intentions, I had three conflicts with people, two of which uh, were brought to HR and one of which the person brought it to me directly. And of the two people who brought it to HR, um, in one case, I just fucked up. You know, I just made a mistake and I didn't realize it and I apologized and, you know, we had a perfectly good time. With the other person who brought it to HR, that was much more complex, but we had a thoughtful conversation about the conflict became, uh, you know, absolutely close, right? You know, and working hand in glove for the rest of my time there. I just spoke to that person on my last day. Um, and, and then the other person, person who just came to me directly, she had guts because she's a senior director and I'm a senior vice president. And she was annoyed by something. She's an African-American woman. She said, look, you're a white guy, a black woman. That, when you say that to me, that feels like a microaggression. I didn't know what a microaggression was, but I'm like, tell me more, right? And because, you know, 
I said, uh, you know, I heard all of this and I said, look, uh, I have absolutely no desire to ever make you feel that way. And I am grateful to you that you let me know. And I hope that you'll give me a chance at doing better. Um, here's what I was reacting to. Because I think at one point, this person, I had to do that person's review, right? And this is a person who uh, is very like, here's your face. There she is with everybody, right? And so she's yeah. super aggressive, uh, you know, but perceived me to be making microaggressions. And, uh, you know, my sense of it was, you know what? The power imbalance is vast. I'm like three levels above her. I'm this person. For those of you who don't know me uh, out in the industry, I'm also like, like a lot of people know me. Uh, people know me in the industry, because, the industry which is the digital media industry, because I put people on stage for a lot of years. I'm a researcher, all of these things. So here, like the power imbalance was really clear. She was brave enough to call me on it and to say, "Here's how this makes me feel." Uh, and I said, uh, "That's not how I wanted to make you feel." And we went on to have a fantastic working relationship. See, I dig that whole scenario, right? I think it's fantastic. Microaggressions. My brother, who's a law professor and an academic, and he teaches. And your co-author, right? My co-author, my book. He, we talked about this because he read this book too, and I had him. He's very opinionated, just like I am, and he just said, "You know, I get a kick out of that term, microaggression." He said, "Because what? What did they give examples of?" I said, "Well, grabbing your purse is one example they gave. If you're walking down the street in New York City." And you see a black person coming towards you, you grab your purse. That's a microaggression. Asking where you're from, like my wife, who's Chinese, many people ask her that because she doesn't look Chinese because she's six feet tall. And she has kind of round eyes, even though she's 100% Chinese. Who are you? What are you? My cousins, you know, my actual relatives in Minnesota said, what are you to her? A couple of them. And so is that a microaggression? Paul, my brother, I said, that's not a microaggression. That's blatant racism, <laughs> right? And I'm like, okay, but this is my brother. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm sharing that. Just hold on a sec, because I'm sharing that where I'm like, it, is it micro if it's that noticeable? That's right? just aggression. Exactly. That's what he's saying. That's not a micro. The, the micro doesn't need to be attached to that word. And he said the same thing you did. He said the power imbalance between Debbie and everyone else she's in contact with. It doesn't bother her because she is a managing director of an head agency. She's highly educated. She's successful. She's confident. And she grew up with a wonderful family, right? So like all those things considered, the power imbalance is a really big thing. And that's why I wanted to touch on that because you mentioned that. And that scenario is wonderful because to me, that's why I don't think safe space is beneficial because if you're an adult in a corporation and the boss says something that you find offensive at a microaggressive level, you go talk to him. I think that's awesome and brave and, and laudable. Where is the safe space necessary? Like, you're a good dude. I mean, if you're a complete jackass, yeah, then you go to HR and say, you know, Brad made a comment about blah, blah, blah. And I told him it was, and then he made another one next week. And then the week after that, he just keeps doing it. He's mean, you know, like that's, but that isn't a safe space. That's go to HR and get this asshole fired, right? Well, yeah, but that rarely happens. I mean, you look at you look right, at right. But so, what does the safe space look like? <laughs> well, uh, okay, I, in a in a company, in a company. But look, it, with adults, <laughs> I guess that's the thing. It's just killing me. How many real adults do you know, Joey Dumont? Come on, I mean, like, there's so many people who my wife in hor- <laughs> Well, that, that's a high bar, isn't it? I mean, yes. The, 
the, the <sighs> you know, like, so look, you've got, uh, I just think like giving people an opportunity to be seen as people in, in organizations is not a bad thing. Um, I, the, the, oh, problem no. with, well, the problem with going to HR is that HR does not work for you as an employee. You know, they say like human it, human resources, it sounds like resources for humans, but it's actually humans as resources for the organization. So having yeah. some kind of a place uh, in a big organization where you uh, actually are going to go and where you can talk to somebody who can be your advocate, that's actually something that most organizations lack. That's the function that unions used to have. Right. Unions, which have been in decline in this country for a lot of reasons around capitalism and profit and a lot of really disturbing things. But unions used to exist to say, hey, right, you're an employee. We're the advocate of the employee. Human resources is the advocate of the corporation. We're going to meet somewhere in the middle. Um, You know, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, And so but just getting going all the way back, which is, um, you know, uh, there's another book that I'm going to repost, right? You okay. gave me, by the way, if you don't, if you had any doubt of my love and esteem for you, the fact that I read every page of this fucking book for this interview should give you an indication. I appreciate it. So, because it was like, it's such a mediocre book, right? I mean, like, it's, it's, it's just... Like the, what's going on in universities today is really important. And the, the crisis of universities uh, is profound and so much bigger than what they're talking about. Well, and, no, but let's, stick, let's stick with that for a sec. You mentioned that and I put that down here. What is so much bigger? That's a really provocative right. statement. So there are two massive crises that are happening in higher education today, right? right? One of them is not new. It's been bubbling up for decades. And that is the overproduction of PhDs that has started after the second I, world. They war. talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Little yeah, yeah no, you're right. But, but they you do. Know, like, 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 oh, oh, and there's this thing. And we're going to spend <laughs> another 298 pages talking about the stuff that we care about. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Okay. But uh, so, so what, what is the overproduction? What the overproduction of PhDs means is that you have an exploited underclass of graduate students, yes. adjuncts, and non-tenured people who go into the university who want to have the intellectual freedom to pursue things. Tenure exists so people can take risks. In practice, I think tenure often means that people uh, become overly infatuated with their own neuroses and stop producing stuff. But ideally, the system is designed for people to pursue difficult subjects in order uh, and be protected so that we can advance knowledge. But now what we have is the vast majority of people who have doctorates, advanced degrees, who cannot make a living and who, when they do make a living, when they get get some partial uh, job, they're incredibly precarious. And so they can't say anything. You know, they have to yeah. be very, very careful. There was one of the examples in the book where someone said something mildly provocative, got into a little bit of trouble, you know, and then their contract was not renewed. Correct. You know, there was no, and there was no union, you know, um, you know, there's no one advocating. Now, the academic senate does want, and most universities does want to advocate for those people, but, uh, you know, they're usually not as organized as the administration, which is you know, increasingly populated by MBAs. So you have an exploited class of workers who have 
made it so that tenure is basically going away, which means that protected intellectual endeavor is under threat. Right. So that's right. the first huge That's crisis. a huge problem. That is a huge yeah. problem. Right. They don't talk about that at all. Right. Now, another huge crisis in higher education, which they couldn't have talked about because they went to press. Hold on. I wrote it down. They went to press. I think it was May of 20, May of 20, book went to press in May of 2018. Right. Well, they also, by the way, just another note I made is uh, about Me Too, which they glance at, but they don't talk about in any, no. in any depth. So, uh, sometime between May of 2018 and now, uh, Google did something really shocking, which is, is it said, we're launching this online education portal where you can take classes uh, for a very, very low fee and learn to be a project manager, learn to code this, learn to code that. That wasn't the exciting thing or the, the disruptive thing. The disruptive thing was they said, oh, and by the way, we're going to treat people who graduate from these programs the same way we treat people who graduate from universities. Out of nowhere, Google announced that the entire apparatus of, the, of higher education in this country was now optional. The, the currency that colleges and universities use to, to create a moat around all of their endeavor is accreditation. You look at yep. Udacity and Coursera and all of these online uh, education platforms, they are not accredited. You don't no. get university credits. It's monopoly money, right? Now, yeah. there are corporations that want to use it. There are ways of doing continuing advanced education, but no one has yet been able to compete with the community college, the state college, the liberal arts college, you know, that are in your town because they can say, you at, you go here, you pay money, you get credits, you get a degree. Suddenly, Google, one of the largest employers in California, a hugely uh, powerful corporation, is saying, we're not doing any of that. We don't need to worry about that. We will accept our own currency, which are these courses that we've developed, for hiring. Google's leveraging its intellectual uh, uh, prowess, its technology, and its authority as an employer in a way that is hugely threatening to higher education. This is, now again, they don't have a time machine, you know, but like this is not the kind of thing that these two authors are remotely interested in. We are seeing small colleges start to wither up and die. Merrillhurst College is a small Catholic college two miles from my house. I live uh, in Lake Oswego, which is a small town south of Portland. Merrillhurst, a longtime Catholic college. They couldn't compete. Mm -hmm. They couldn't compete with... Arizona State University or the University of Phoenix, which are both doing extraordinary things, really innovative things with online education, right? Suddenly you could go get those credits elsewhere. And the, the model uh, that these small colleges, which are, again, increasingly, you know, they're going to start to drop like flies um, because they can't compete on price, on prestige, on accreditation. So if you look back to when you and I both got into the internet time, you know, so I'm thinking like late 90s, early 2000s, mm -hmm. the universities today are where the record labels were about five, Ooh, 10 years good before Napster, right? Yeah. Napster first, then the iPod and iTunes, right? You had an entire uh, armature around the record labels where they controlled the rights, 
They controlled the creation of the product. They controlled the distribution of the product. And all of that went away. And now you have Spotify and streaming and all and podcasts like this one. And so that's where higher education is going. Right, where suddenly there's what what the iPod and iTunes of higher education is going to be. You know, we're we're sneaking up on it in different ways. There's like the great courses and iTunes University, but those things are great. Khan Academy, right? Khan Academy, all of those are great content. They're great learning that there's no bridge built between that and credits, right? Uh, I think Los Altos, California, the public school district uh, just south of where you live. They've incorporated the Khan Academy into their curriculum. And so SalCon, they have it's a contract and they're working on it. And the Khan Academy is an extraordinary thing because it's fl- it's called the flipped classroom. My wife is an yeah. expert on this, right? It's like the, the stuff that really matters in the classroom is not the sage on the stage who's talking, but you know, working with a student and helping that, per- that student to understand something so that she or he can master the material. Well, if you can outsource the lecture to go do that on your own time, and then when you're in the classroom, let's really work on the, those things. That's only possible because of technology. So those are the two disruptive events, those two meteors that are hurtling towards the university system in this country and worldwide right now. And those are, I think, much bigger for how are we going to get educated? What counts about an education? How are employers supposed to evaluate what someone actually does? You know, and where do we go as a culture in providing the opportunities for people to pursue the level of education that is going to best suit with their continued happiness and prosperity, as opposed to thinking that the answer, which again, this is something they do talk about effectively, but more effectively is a guy named Michael Sandel, uh, who wrote a book called The Tyranny of Merit that I finished recently. What Sandel talks about is like, why should someone's, you know, entire self-worth be uh, constructed around whether or not they go to college, right? Like people who go to college then think that they're doing all of this stuff. Their success is all their own doing because they got into college. And then people, this is hubris. And then people who didn't go to college feel ashamed for the rest of their lives because somehow they didn't measure up, right? That, that's like, that's a horrible place for people to be. So those are the crises that I think are important. And those are great. And I appreciate you pointing that out. I think the irony for Google, I had a buddy of mine who he was interviewing there to be their deputy general counsel for the philanthropic group. And I won't mention his name because I don't want to get him in this, but they, yes, asked, they, asked, they asked for his, his transcripts. This was in 2005 or six, maybe. <clears throat> they asked for his transcripts at Colg, I don't want to say at his undergrad. Right. which is a very prestigious university. He went to the, one of the best law schools in the world. He climbed Everest. <laughs> he played in the French Open. I mean, this guy was a true Renaissance man. And they asked for this transcripts of his undergrad and asked him questions about a B. <laughs> so the fact that they're now saying, hey, you know what? Uh, we're good. We're going to teach you guys here on campus and then you can come back. I just wanted to mention that. What I did want to touch on though, specific to the... And maybe they didn't mention it that much in the book, but that was a huge discussion with this as the fulcrum, right? They're like, hey, this exists. We're printing PhDs. And these, these people don't have nowhere to go when they get done. I There's was one that. of those people. But, yes. And inside of that, they talk about something called, what is it? The institutional disconfirmation problem that exists within universities today. And as someone who is an expert in this field, that 
I'm curious about because, and I may be getting my numbers, but they're close. It was two to one liberal versus conservative in the 80s and 90s. And a lot of those professors, as they referred to them, were uh, the generational professors that came out of World War II. And there was kind of a mixture. It was both Republican and Democrat that were the baby boomers teaching us at that point. So then it went from two to one to 2001. It was six to one or eight to one liberal versus conservative. And 2016 data was 14 to one. And so part of their concern was that the ideology that is being taught, and this is a huge talking point on the right, correct? I mean, the right is always saying the liberals are poisoning all the young minds of the universities. And, and I don't agree with that nonsense, but this is a valid point. Is Institutional disconfirmation is that if you don't have opposing points of view of like-kind peers, there's, there's issues on citations, there's issues on peer reviews, there's issues on uh, ideology being sacrosanct. And, and that is a big piece of their issue where if, and, they, and that's, that's where they did bring up the young PhDs, because if these, these young PhDs come out in social sciences and fight with a very provocative paper against something that goes against the grain of the university's ideology, they don't get promoted, they don't get re-upped, right? What is your view on this institutional disconfirmation piece? Is it valid what they're saying? That there's too many liberals? And by the way, one more thing, Jonathan Haidt started the Heterodox Academy based on that specific finding, which he now has 5,000 fellow academics, mm -hmm. social scientists, on the, and I belong to the network. As a non-academic, I wasn't allowed in. <laughs> I got the email, like, go fuck yourself. But they were nice about it. They're like, how about you join this and we can still give you access to our stuff, which is great. And I've loved it, being on their platform and looking at all these academics pontificate. But it seems to me that could be a problem, right? Would you have way too many liberals? And I, as a liberal, I can say, you know, I love my brethren, but they can be wicked annoying sometimes. And so, like, what, what do you think of that specific claim, the institutional disconfirmation concern? I think a lot of it has to do with timeframes because you know, universities that generally, cultures generally change slowly. You know, we happen to be at a historic moment where because of Me Too and George Floyd and the pressure cooker of the pandemic that we've seen more change in the last 18 months than we probably have in the last 100 years. That's true. Uh, or, or not the last 100 years, but I mean, like, just in terms of, like, how much things have changed so quickly. Tectonic so, shifts. The, yeah. Uh, so, you know, like uh, universities are designed to move slowly. It's the difference between the House and the Senate, right? The reason why senators are elected for six years is to act as a break on the kind of woo woo Marx Brothers quality of the House of Representatives because those guys have to, they're always running for re-election. They're only elected for two years. So those they're the balance is that the House is like the yeast where all of the like, you know, stuff comes up. And then the Senate is the break and saying, no, 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 no. Well, it's, we have to be methodical about this. You have somebody like Mitch McConnell who just works the system to his advantage, and that's kind of disheartening. Um, but so, you know, I, I'm just like, you know, what is it? Intellectual, uh, I, I, and, and let's just 
put it in in plain English and this confirmation, yeah. an unwillingness to go against the grain and say, you know, maybe, maybe that's not such a great idea. Or what if we were to take a step back and, and challenge our fundamental precepts around this? Are we being the victims of groupthink? Yeah. Are we perpetuating mistakes that we shouldn't perpetuate? Those are the missions of the university, but they just take a lot longer, right? Like it takes decades for some ideas to work themselves out of the system. It's like what they used to tell you when you were a kid, like don't swallow the gum because it's going to be there for 20 years and you're not going to poop it out for the longest amount of time. Like ideas are like gum in the intestines of the university. It just (laughs) takes a long time for these things to change. Um, You know, I have been, and, and, and the other thing is like, you just can't take it personal, right? Like that's the problem. Oh, I agree. My objection to uh, my objection to the phenomenon that, that Lukianov and Height are talking about is also my objection to the kind of hypersensitivity, which is like it's not about you, right? This is what we we're talking. You know, we glance at this around pronouns, right? It's yeah. like you know, like I don't care what your pronouns are. I'll do my best to keep track. But at this point, there's so many of them that it can be, you know, I, I'll forget. I have uh, a person in my life who, is, you know, uh, Peter Haran, who you know, uh, yeah. talks about his bonus kids. There are these two people in his life who kind of came along with his kids. And now, he, you know, he talks about as his bonus kids. And I've adopted that. Right? My daughter's, my oldest child, my daughter's best friend from when they were six months old uh, is one of my bonus kids. And then the young woman who was my kid's nanny, who then moved with us to Norway and, uh, and then uh, worked in my uh, consultancy for me, and she's my other bonus kid. But I've just blown it twice because uh, this young person recently let me know that um, they, them are yeah. that person's preferred pronouns. Correct. Now, I've known that person as a woman since... 2009. I've known that person as gender fluid for a couple of weeks. And so it's going to take some getting used to. The good news is that they don't seem to mind if I screw it up on a regular basis because they know that I'm trying my best. And my sense is if this person who I used to refer to as my niece, who is now I don't know what the noun would be. Yeah, I don't either. My bonus kid, right? Now I'll just, you know, right? Then, uh, you know, uh, they know that I love them, right? And that I'm doing my best. My only goal is for them to be happy. Um, As a grammar guy and, uh, you know, a copy editor in recovery, I can say that using a plural pronoun with an individual still chaps my ass, but that's less important than the emotional well-being. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. I agree with that 100%. And I also would say that, and this is an extreme example too, which I'm going to point out or bring up. There's 31 pronouns in New York City now. They, them, these are, you know, like queer, fluid, you know, all these. And I thought queer was like a pejorative, So, but that's back. And so... That hasn't been right since the 90s, pal. Yeah, let me just preface this too. It depends, I, on, it depends on who is saying it, right? Correct, like correct. The N-word, right? Correct. Dr. Dre can say the N-word. I yeah, can't. We can't. I'm okay right. with that. I'm not me too. Gonna, you know. Me too. But all I'm saying is that I want to make sure that people, anybody who's listening to this, I 
my heart bleeds for anybody that has to go through this, right? So the whole, I, if, I have a hard time with pimples when I was 16. Like, so the fact that I didn't know if I was, how I felt in my own gender, you know, or how, how I felt with one of my own sex, that that's, it, I just, yes, to your point earlier, I'm an empath. I feel so bad for those people. And so whatever I can do to make their life easier, awesome. <laughs> they talk about in the book, the principle of charity, which is that if someone does make a mistake, with the pronoun that you're, you're understanding these people are new to this multiculturalism, to this trans, uh, trans thing that's happening within our lives. And so there's a lot of things that we all have to, as a culture, be, you know, empathetic to one another. And they're the big piece around this. I don't know if you've read Jordan Peterson's take on this, but he's a professor at university of Toronto and the British common law actually mandated compelled speech around this for the university in which you have to choose a pronoun to use for your students. And it's compelled by law, which is the first time this has ever happened. He came out and talked about this. And in my research, I found out who this man was. And I actually agree with a lot of things that he says. He said the same thing that we're saying is that I don't have a problem saying they, them, Zizer, whatever they're identified what I don't like is that the government, <laughs> in this case, is com- mandating through compelled speech that I call someone something. So saying that you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater is around language that is dangerous. Called speech. Yeah. Correct. Now they're saying, oh, by the way, here's what you have to say when approaching these things. And, and I bring that up as an example. It's not happening in the United States, but it, it's part of the bigger discussion in this book and Dr. Peterson, Jordan Peterson, was also on a panel with Jonathan Haidt about this exact topic. And this is what they were talking about. That this ideologies are dangerous. And if you come across, if you come at this with an us versus them mentality, you know, part of the one of the claims they talked about was a young lady who said, You don't understand me to a white professor, said, mm-hmm. You're part of the problem. You're part of the white male, male patriarchy. Go fuck yourself. That's exactly exact words. I don't need to hear from you. You'll never understand me. <laughs> and the whole point is like, well, if I'll never understand you, and then you need me to understand you, we're at an impasse, right? If there's sure. something generally wrong there. And so that to me is where the principle of charity kind of plays in is that let's just not assume that everything is a microaggression in this case, Right. And that was part of what they're pushing up against in the book is, and they used the Brett Weinstein example in Evergreen College, where he, and I'll, I'll be brief with this, but they had a day of absence at Evergreen College every year. Right, I read the book. But yeah, keep going. no, I'm, for the audience. For those and, and, and the idea is- We're saving that, you time, Joey's yeah, audience. Exactly. They, it was from a playwright, a black playwright who had- a fictional story about black people just not showing up to the town. Mm-hmm. And it so showed the town what happens when we don't show up. Everything kind of falls apart, which is a really cool play. And then they adopted this in the early 70s at Evergreen College and said, we want to do the same thing. And so they let people of color go out and do their charity work of that day. Their day of absence was to go do something, which was really cool. Then they decided in 2015 to change that and mandate that white people and, and faculty were not allowed on the campus which was, it rubbed people the wrong way. And Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather, both tenured professors at Evergreen, 
Heather was the most popular liberal president, or excuse me, professor at a very liberal college. Her husband was a close second, very, very popular with the student body. He put a note together for the faculty and said, this seems divisive to me. I don't think this makes sense. Here's why. He illustrated his reasoning. And then that, no big deal. But a week later, somehow that got out and 50 students stormed his classroom and yelled and screamed and said the same thing. You don't have a right to speak. You're white male privilege, blah, 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 blah. And so like, that's where for me, and this is again, I, I think I express my allegiance to Jonathan Haidt. I love him. And I, I, I saw this as a problem. I saw this because I, I think I kind of would have done the same thing. If I was in a liberal college and I wanted to be part of this really cool group and I wanted to fight the man, you know, even though I'm, I look white, I'm, half, I'm Hispanic and French, but I, I could pass as white. And so I'd be like, yeah, let's fight the system, you know, because I'm 18 and I'm... And I think that's what... It went way too far. And the problem was, is they threatened him physically. They told him to go fuck himself. They told him he was part of the white male patriarchy. All of these things. And this was not just... There's probably eight or nine cases in the book that references exact behavior. And so I just referenced that because he, he and Heather both left the university because there were kids walking around with baseball bats in the parking lot looking for him for the next week. The police on campus said they could no longer protect him and his wife. So they told him to to refrain from coming to school. So he eventually left and they settled out of court. Um, And he started a podcast called The Black Horse. And and Brett is an evolutionary biologist. So he doesn't have any, you know, there's no poor Brett. I felt terrible for him. He's fine. He's doing well, as is his wife. But that was an example for me that was like, wow, man, we're we're not even talking. Right. So it's like that to me, and this was just kind of a long winded uh, example of how ideology is becoming really dangerous. And that is another thing to me. This ideology of we're right, you're wrong, you know, being the, the man or the, the patriarchy or the hierarchy within the universities, because that's also a big theme in this book. So, like, do you think ideology itself is dangerous or am I over, are they overthinking it and I'm, agreeing with it, you know, by not paying attention to something. So ideology is always a shortcut to doing any real thinking. Um, And we need to have those shortcuts because otherwise we just get mired in detail for our entire lives. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, the, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist talks about uh, that there's system one and system two uh, in your mind. And system one is extraordinarily fast, makes lightning fast judgments that 90% of the time are accurate, but not the other 10% of the time. And that's where you have system two, which is methodical and data-driven, but incredibly lazy. Um, And so, you know, and this interplay between those two systems. Um, You know, the issue is, so, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, I'm, in addition to everything else I do, I'm a researcher, um, have run sort of surveys of the U.S., statistically accurate snapshot of the U.S. population, right, and uh, for uh, transportation and health and finance and longitudinal work with the Center for the Digital Future. And, you know, the data is always fascinating because these things that you think are, you know, huge or tiny and these things that you think are tiny are huge. And so, you know, I'm not uh, trying to minimize this, but like, Again, look at how many, uh, you know, how much of the time universities are running just fine. That, you know, you're, it's a great that, point. 
You've got all of these you know, classes that are successfully being taught. You have all of these lectures that are successfully uh, being there. You've got all of these people who are, you know, having thoughtful conversations. And, you know, like, generally speaking, like the incidence of this kind of thing happening is vanishingly small. Is there an absence of empathy? Yes. Is it, is it an overstatement to say, uh, you white male guy cannot possibly understand me because you have not lived my experience? Okay, like if that's your belief, you know, that's your belief. On the other hand, um, you know, we've been reading fiction and, you know, we've been watching things and there are all sorts of tools that we have as a culture to try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Now, by and large, we don't. And the, you know, these guys, uh, you know, remind me of E.D. Hirsch Jr., who in the 80s, you know, published a book called Cultural Literacy you know, decrying the death of the canon and saying, you know, gosh, we used to have all of these works that everybody knew. And it was great because we had this kind of common patois. If you said there is a tide in the affairs of men and everyone recognized the reference to Julius Caesar. And, and it was, you know, it was, it was an identity uh, kind of reinforcing thing where we had this shared culture. And he was bemoaning that and suggesting that we needed to get back to it. The problem was he kind of the perception, whether or not this was the reality, was that he was saying that all of this messy stuff written by gay people and black people and Asian people, you know, why do we have to bother with any of that? Right. That that was how what, what the takeaway was. You know, so there's a woman named Judith Federley who wrote a really remarkable book. I think it was in the 80s called The Resisting Reader. She's an early feminist critic of, of American literature. And what she said was. The problem with the way literature is taught today is that it teaches me to read like a man, not like a woman. And she talks about the story of Rip Van Winkle as her paradigmatic example, where, you know, who is the villain in the story of Rip Van Winkle? It's the wife. It's Dame Van Winkle. She's kind of a shrew. Uh, you know, from Rip's perspective, you know, she you know wants him to do chores. She doesn't want him to go fishing. She's always complaining about him. He goes away. He falls asleep for a hundred years. He comes back, and you know, everyone's like, "Hey, you're the guy who disappeared a hundred years ago." And he's like, "Yeah, what about my wife?" They're like, "Oh, she died eighty years ago." Like, oh, thank God! Now I can go back to my life. You know, and if you're reading that as a woman, you're like, "Wait, I'm." I'm the bad guy here. Like I'm the villain of this piece. Um, and so what Federley talks about in the resisting reader is learning to resist those narratives. Well, those narratives are written in concrete throughout the university where, you know, like, Oh, learn what the best that's been thought and said, which is Matthew Arnold talking about the university. What was left unstated was learn the best that has been thought and said by white Christian landholding men. Right. You know, this country is founded on the same idea. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all white Christian landholding men are created equal. <laughs> right. And over the course of the two plus centuries that we've been here, we've watched all of those uh, adjectives get whittled away and even the word men. So we now, if we're uh, appealing to the better, better angels of our natures, we believe that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created yeah. equal, right? But but that is a an ideal to which we aspire, rather than uh, something that we've succeeded at. And so, you know, like 
Am I worried about the lack of empathy? Yes, but I'm more worried about the lack of empathy um, in on Fox News right, than I am on university campuses. Because by the time you get to the university campus, you've already passed all of these you know, educational and economic tests that mean that you kind of are like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of how the rules are here. Uh, I'm much more concerned, and they do not talk about this, and it chapped my ass. I'm concerned about misinformation and disinformation in media today. Uh, oh, I agree. Well, obviously, from our pur- purview, that's we know the problem there. But let me ask you this then, because maybe this is just a, a next step. They also talk about intersectionality within the book. And in that, just so I don't trip on my own words, they have... <sighs> Language not being sufficient. So privilege is part of the axis. And on that axis, the privilege is described as white, male, upper class, fertile, hetero, cisgender, able-bodied. The oppressed are infertile, poor, female, non-white, gay, and lesbian. And so when I talked about this with Professor Durham on Tuesday, we laughed because we are we are in the privilege class across the board, right? And so are you. So I am Jewish. Then you're well. There you go. So you have one. You could be then. One. You could be one of the oppressors. <laughs> you know, you, you have one that disqualifies you. So you're good there. I don't have any. I, I mean, I'm half Hispanic, so I got that going for me, I guess. But no, you grew up poor. I did grow up poor. <laughs> True. I mean, no, so, I mean, like, like, but like again, there's no calculus for. Well, no, but today though, this is what they say. Today, right? I'm part of the privileged class because I'm I'm of those. I, I fit all those pieces. So. I'm upper class, I'm not white, but I'm fertile and hetero and cisgendered and all that. And so what I asked John, and I would ask you the same thing, is that I talked to a buddy who I'm, actually not a friend, he's an acquaintance, but I'm, he's coming on the podcast in three weeks to talk about critical race theory. He's a black educated Harvard lawyer, or excuse me, Georgetown lawyer who teaches DEI now. And so I wanted, that was the next, after reading this, I was like, man, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a really complicated acronym. What does that look like? And part of what got my cockles up with this was that if you're a freshman, you're 18 years old, you go to your orientation and they say, here's what your, here's what your classmates look like. And if you identify as this, right? you are in the privileged class. And if you identify as this, you are a part of the oppressed. So immediately, and I don't know exactly how this has happened. And to your point, it's, and they, they do say this in the book, all of this is fringe. They're not saying that the data says this is overwhelming, but it's 8% of the graduating body of 2020, whatever the calendar year was. But if you... And I'll just use my little boys as an example. If my little boys then go to a indoctrination, or not indoctrination, but a orientation, and they tell them that they're half Chinese, they're half white, quote unquote, and look around the student camp, look around the campus, and now you can see where you sit. It's almost a hierarchy in training, which sure. again, they complain about hierarchies, you know, they being uh, activists. What does intersectionality look like to you? Do you, how do you see that? Because this is being taught in corporations now, sure. right? You know, and, and what is that? To me, that seems like we're, as liberals, we're going too far. Well, again, like, you know. Because that's just division, right? That's just like, that's just right, setting right, up division right, right, right. in the. So look, 
world ad guy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How many times, if you're trying to get somebody to switch from Coke to Pepsi, good luck, by the way. But if you're trying to get somebody to try your client's product, if you just say it once to them, is it going to work? Right? Like seven times. (laughs) Right? Seven 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 is, you know, that's a mythical number, but like, yeah, it takes, you know, like a, a myth in advertising is that it takes seven exposures before someone Correct. is going to possibly be open to a change. Yes. So I will uh, postulate that one meeting in one freshman orientation, you know, session that says, hey, you might want to think about the fact that not everybody looks like you and that you might have certain privileges because of the way you look. Uh, and uh, And maybe you want to think about that and not jump to conclusions about other people. Um, I don't think that was sound. I would agree with that. Yeah. That's pretty much what they're saying. Okay. Okay. Like, and even if it's this overstated and even, and pervasive, like one time, one time is not going to do much, right? Like people, uh, you know, it takes a lot of work to change people's minds. Um, about things that they're actually engaged in and that they care about, let alone the stuff that's just floating around out there. If you're taught in, to believe, like uh, uh, when I lived in Ireland uh, as an undergraduate, I was frequently the first Jewish person, and I'm like an atheist and like, you know, but culturally very Jewish. Um, yeah, I was the first Jewish person that anyone had ever met. And they would ask questions that in this country would be laughable, but so charming. They're like, oh, I say you're Jewish. Well, do you celebrate Christmas then? Like, no, no, no Christmas. <laughs> like, but, but why not? I said, well, to celebrate Christmas, you have to celebrate the Christ Mass. You have to be a Christian. And if you're not yeah. a Christian, then you don't celebrate Christmas. And they're so no Christmas. Like, no, no Christmas. Like, it just, like, it didn't compute. <laughs> You know, like the idea that, that that someone was just a bystander for the Yule uh, was really yeah. unthinkable to them. So, again, I don't think we're in um, a danger of suddenly becoming a country full of open minded people who evaluate evidence and, and thoughtfully change their opinions. I think what we have to do is what advertisers do, what politicians do, which is we have to, you know, be saying the same thing consistently why and say why we're saying it. Um, in order to affect change slowly, uh, which is a really unsexy thing to say. And it's, enti- it's so, I'm, I feel like I'm being so reasonable that I'm like the worst podcast guest ever. Because every time you say, aren't you excited about this? And I'm like, nah, you know, like, <laughs> no, it's great. I, it's, this is why I wanted you on the show. I, I want to get the whole idea of this podcast is to have polite debate about things. And and the intersectionality of interesting and important. And I look at these, in, these are interesting topics who I think are very important, not only to our culture, but to me specifically as a leadership coach, right? I want, when I'm talking with executives about how are you guys dealing with this, I haven't had any positive feedback on intersectionality, not one, not one. And so and the, the cool thing is, is that when I talk to my buddy who is coming on as a DEI consultant and a lawyer and an advocate, uh, an activist, he doesn't like it either. And so that's why I brought it up because it's, and then we asked, I asked him, which I, we didn't get into because I wanted to expose this on camera. But when you talk about equity, that's another discussion. So on one of the Intelligence Square debates, there was a professor from Georgetown 
who said, I don't teach DEI because I teach ethics. He said, so it's a much big, it's a much bigger conversation. Understood. But he said, the problem that we have, and the reason I don't use the acronym is because we have yet to identify and agree upon what equity means, right? And so equity of opportunity was one discussion. Do you believe everyone should be have the same opportunity? And a lot of people that I've witnessed in this conversation, yes, I think everyone should have equal opportunity. Should we have equal outcomes? And if so, how do you measure that? And if so, how do you buttress that? If so, how do you encourage that? Those were the questions. So then I, I was having another conversation with a, a conservative buddy of mine the other day. And he said, so you think you, you agree with equal, it's equal opportunity? And I said, I do. And he goes, do you guys have an uh, inheritance plan for your children? And I said, yeah, I do actually. And he goes, okay, so you guys have put money away for your kids when they graduate from college or something happens to you or when you die. I'm like, yeah, they will inherit our, our estate. And he said, okay. So is that equal? And I was like, and I just started laughing. And I was like, so is, is it, does it extend that far? Right, equal opportunity for my little boys is very yeah. different than others. And so that to me where the DEI comes in is that how do you define? And that, like, that's why these are such complex questions. That, right, but, you know, but, like, but like, let's go back to the guy who says, I don't believe in DEI, I believe in ethics, right? Like, yeah. And, that, and, and that the, the horseshit reason that he gives is that we don't have a tightly agreed upon definition of equity. That's horseshit. And the reason it's horseshit is, uh, you know, look at Potter Stewart, uh, the Supreme Court justice, who effectively uh, defined pornography for you know the last six you know when you see it (laughs) exactly right like really do we really need a formula to like it's not equity equity is the goal right a lack of equity is what we're trying to identify and we can see inequitable situations all around us all the time that doesn't mean that we necessarily can wave our magic wands uh, and suddenly make them better. But that also doesn't mean that that you know, somehow excuses us from trying and that we, we're just going to give up, right? Like I spent, you know, I spent years in every organization I belong to trying to make the culture better, right? Because I believe in culture. Just something as simple as having lunch with people before the pandemic or asking people, well, how are you doing? Like learning the names of their children, the names yeah. of their spouses, learning what their hobbies are, what they care about, to think about people in a non-transactional way. And that's the easy stuff. When the George Floyd murder happened, the entire world, including uh, you know the organization I was working at at the time, ground to a halt. And a guy who I work with closely, I worked with my entire time there, uh, who's a you know a large African American guy, uh, you know, said in a meeting, he said, you know, it's like that he feels it's not a war, it's a hunt, right? And I was like taken aback by that, right? That and and couldn't argue with him. Right. But like he doesn't feel like there is a war, like in a war where you, there's somehow you've got a chance. Right. He felt like the prey. Right. That was a reorganization of my entire way of approaching this. No, that is that is amazing. That, I feel the same way. I didn't think right. about that. Yeah. yeah. And yet and like unless there's a space to have the conversation about that, um, you know, it's difficult. I have a friend who herself is white. Her partner is black. She has two little boys about the same age as yours. And she's terrified 
when they leave that that they're not going to come home because of the way they look. Right. And I, I'm ashamed that it was my white friend articulating this to me as a fear that that's when I really heard it. Right. And I have black friends, but like somehow, you know, it wasn't until that person said it, that I was like, you know, like I, I, now do I fear that my daughter is going to be battered, raped, sex trafficked? Yes. You know, uh, she's little and pretty and all of those things, you know, and I do, I have the same fears. I have other fears about my son, but, you know, generally speaking, he looked, you know, he's bigger than me. His voice is deeper than mine. He's got more <laughs> hair on his chest. Like, you know, I don't think people are necessarily going to look at him and think that he's a victim. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, but it's like easier victims. <laughs> let's just say that. Right. <laughs> work less hard. Uh, yeah. So, so those are like, those are the big deals I think here, right? Like that, that, you know, the, of all of the things that are in this book that annoy the hell out of me. The thing that I agree with is when they're talking about charity and and simply trying to give people the benefit of the doubt uh, that they're not evil people uh, until they demonstrate that they are. I want to repost though, right? And I was going to talk about this earlier, but you asked so many questions and I I just keep on nattering on. Um, This is the book I'd love to have you read. And I'll even come back on the show if you uh, if you want, I so have that on my bookshelf. I haven't okay. read it. So, so yeah. because the four agreements is essentially a much more user friendly version of the coddling of the American mind, right? The four agreements are uh, be impeccable with your word, which is an overly touchy feely way of saying mean what you say and say what you mean. Right? Don't take things personally. Which if people stop taking things personally on campuses and elsewhere. Or if they are taking things personally, confront the person and say, hey, I'm taking that kind of personally. Tell me more about yeah. what you meant. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, don't presume, which is what cognitive behavioral therapy talks about, is don't yeah. try to be a mind reader. Yeah. And do your best. Right? Those are the four agreements that the author, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, talks about. And honestly, like I read a lot of books. I'm a big nerd in every possible direction. This was a life changing read for me. I'll read it. Right? I'll read it. Uh, and I think, again, it's a much more so like, so. <laughs> practical version of a lot of the same lessons that the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind are, are trying to presume. I just feel like at the end of reading The Coddling book, I, they're like, there's a bunch of like, you know, wildly esoteric suggestions that they have um, that are going to take a long time and that I didn't really see that they were super invested in the outcomes. Whereas at the end of reading The Four Agreements, I'm like, oh, I feel like I've got a toolbox to be a better, healthier, happier person, be a better man, a better friend, a better father, a better son, a better colleague. Um, You know, so I really recommend, I think that especially given the work that you're doing and, you know, which is like, cause really I'm talking about leadership and talking about men in leadership positions mm-hmm. who are suddenly having to confront uh, that the narrative that got them there is not what's going to get the next generation. There. No. And that they have to figure all of this stuff out and they have to, they have to worry about stuff that they didn't have to worry about before. And they're pissed off. And, and I don't blame them because it's harder than it used to be. Um, but, uh, you know, your work in trying to come up with a, um, a less toxic vision of masculinity that is still masculinity, right? Like your, 
you're you're the anti like you know what Bloom County used to make fun of is like the the Alan Alda Phil Donahue you know <laughs> kind of of the 1980s where we're all yeah. you know uh, we're all just gonna you know feel with each other uh, right. you know, like that's not although uh, you end every email with big hugs which is not the guy I met in 2004. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, but that's, that's hard. And so what you're doing, you're, you're doing by, for, by these two hour conversations and the, the, the book and all this, you're, you're doing that slow work, but it's like slow food or slow yeah. TV in Norway, which is the weirdest thing ever. Like, but the slow work of making, of creating space for people to think differently, that's hard stuff. It is. And that's absolutely fantastic. I will read that book, Brad. I think it's, um, I mean, I, I It'll take you less time to read that one than it took. Yes, you. it will. I'll, I will read that. And we could definitely talk about that. I think that's a big piece of what I'm trying to do with, you know, the upcoming guests too. I have the guests, I have a, a conversation on defund the police from a buddy who is the chief of police at my old hometown. I have a, this young man who's coming on to talk about critical race theory and how it affects his training with diversity and equity and inclusion. And I have some conversations with philosophers on something called mental immunity or cognitive immunity, which is a really cool thesis that's been thrown out there. All of these discussions are for the exact thing that you just mentioned, which is how do we actually begin to get along as a culture? And I said this to my friend the other day, and I'll put this to you because it's one of those things where my brother, who is a lawyer in, in divorce, so he deals with family law. He deals with people at their absolute worst. At their absolute worst. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. When he talked to his client, his client said, well, I just couldn't control myself after he beat up his wife. And my brother said, no, you can control yourself. You didn't control yourself because you had the power in this situation. Right. If you were in a bar and the guy next to you was 6'8", 280 pounds. You would have controlled and, yourself. And he was an MMA fighter. You could control yourself, right? And I'd say the same thing about this you know, unfriending can't talk to, and this happens on my platform. You've seen my feed. I have a lot of friends from high school, two of which I'm going to dinner with tonight, who are Trumpers. And they... Have fun. Right. Well, they have a very different take on the world. I still love them. I grew up with them, right? But I, I, I make fun of them. I have fun. I'm like, well, Donald did this. or you know. But we haven't ruined our friendship over it. Let's just say that. And I have many relatives, including my mother, who vote for Trump and she does because she's an adopted Mexican, which I, I'm like, mom, do you know he said he didn't like you specifically? But it, it, that didn't matter. I mean, the, my point there is that we all need to get along and in the business world, and this is what I'm doing with my presentations to conferences when they come back, is that there isn't anyone in the audience that we went out and I said, how many of you fired your biggest client because he was wearing a red hat? Right. Zero. Zero. Same kind of thing. I did, I did. I beat this person up because I couldn't control myself. No, you can control yourself. If your largest client is wearing a red hat, <laughs> you're like, all right, I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. And we won't talk politics, but we can still be friends. We still have dinner and we laugh and we talk about our kids because we're still human beings. And I think that is what I'm trying to grok with all of the data that's coming in around behavioral science and understanding each other because that's just an old philosophical understanding. That's a spiritual understanding is that you have to first understand before you can love, right? And that... No, no, no. 
No, uh, I, I think that's not true. I think that one of the other things that I disagree with about the coddling book is that they're 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 so like you know they they, they use overstatement in order to create a straw man in order to then have something to say. So this whole thing about like, you know, that always trusting your feelings is a bad thing, right? Don't always trust your feelings because your feelings could be wrong. And I'm like, okay, but, uh, you know, the brain, the human brain and the human mind, they're very complicated. And, you know, sometimes you love and then you figure out why later. Uh, sometimes you have uh, an, an emotional reaction to something and then you your brain has to catch up with your emotions. You know, Dan Gilbert talks about the human brain as a reptilian weenie with a, a mammalian bun wrapped around it. And there are sort of things that happen in the reptilian core of our brain where, you know, they just happen. And then you're like, wait, wait, why am I feeling that way? And sometimes you're feeling that way for a dumb reason. And you talk yourself into a different feeling. But sometimes your emotions are telling you something that's important, right? It's the lack of interrogation that's the problem. Your emotions aren't the problem. What, what you do with them are the problem. Your emotions can't yeah. excuse bad behavior because bad behavior is bad behavior. Um, and, and so learning to listen to your gut, which by the way, I only learned to listen to it in like my late 40s and 50s. Uh, but learning to listen to your gut is actually a really important skill. And sometimes it can be like magic, right? So like, for example, this is a trivial, tiny little example, but it's like a fractal where the pattern builds up over the course of time. Uh, menus over the course of the last 25 years have become impossibly large, particularly at Jewish delicatessens, right? You know, you're like, I'd like a sandwich and they hand you Moby Dick and you're like, oh my God, right? And so... <laughs> Something yeah. that happened to me in my late 40s, early 50s was that I'd be reading a menu and I'm looking through it. And at a certain point, my mouth would start watering. And that was when I figured out, oh, I, I, I want a Monte Cristo, which I never yes. wanted. It came to mind. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was the weirdest thing because then I started watching for it, which is that my something inside of me would decide what I wanted to eat before my rational mammalian brain could do it. And I could track it by just going, when does my mouth fill with saliva as I'm reading this menu at this taco joint? Um, it's crazy. But that's like, I don't want to ignore that. Now, I also don't want to just go with the thing that my mouth waters because I'm a fat boy and I'm trying to lose weight. And if the thing that makes my mouth water is like, hi, I'd like yeah. some saturated fat and cholesterol, please. And maybe I need yeah. to intervene in that. But the dialogue with the different parts of my head is what's important. And so that's another place where I feel like the, uh, the well, book I'll say this in defense. I think what they were pointing out there is twofold. One is the CBT piece because right. that's cognitive behavior. The other piece goes back to the original thesis of Dr. Height which is, and he gives a really good example of an elephant and a rider, mm -hmm. right? So the elephant is, you're, you're the rider on top of the elephant and you're walking somewhere. And someone says, Donald Trump! And your immediacy for me would be to the left. My emotions would swing to the left and be with my party and say, oh my God, he's an awful human being and blah, blah, blah. The rider is then engaged in logic and reason at a post hoc effort because right. the emotion has already happened. So the, that's kind of what they're talking to. And they do elaborate on that thesis in, in great detail in the first book. 
So that was where I think they started to talk about, you can trust your emotion, that's cool, or you can listen to your emotion, but then, you know, put the rider on, the logic and reason cap, and say, is that, is that okay? And part of which is, and again, these are very fringe examples at Evergreen and Berkeley and Yale and Columbia, and they did talk about that too, geography-wise and liberal college-wise, it's very, very small. Right. But the emotion that took place on those campuses is part of what they were talking about because you get that group contagion. You get that, like, we're fired up. We're going to make changes. And a lot of times it does cloud your logic and reason. And I said that that is a big part of what they were talking about. And so I think that the whole idea of, of the untruth of emotional reasoning, right, is a piece where that was their defense. And I actually agree with that because for me, part of Facebook and and we have friends, you know, in the industry that will even DM me on Facebook and say, how do you have these people on your feed? How I know what you're talking possibly, about. How can you possibly be friends with them? Yeah. And I'm like, well, <laughs> and we have one friend, Kevin, I would say his last name, but that'd be indiscreet, Hicks, um, <laughs> is one of those things. And I love him, right? But we go, we go back and forth on Trump all day long. And so it's the emotion of things that he says or things that I say, and we've DM'd each other. I'm like, you know, Maybe I went too far with that, buddy, you know, or whatever it was. But it's there is a love there first, right? right. Where my emotions sometimes like, oh, go fuck yourself, you know, and I want to just like hammer him. But I'm like, all right, dude, I don't understand what you mean by that. You know, that doesn't make any sense or loosen your red cap or, you know, whatever I do to make fun of him. But it is for me the reason that I haven't lost friends and won't based on an ideology is, and I just, dis, I dislike Mr. Trump. At the at the greatest degree, I think he is the personification of the id of America. I think he is the most insecure human being I've ever witnessed in real time. I think he's an odious human being. I think everything about him is wrong. And he'll be a great example for my children. Do everything the opposite of this man, period. There you go. And so let me just state that. But I don't think that I can't disown my mother. I can't disown my relatives. I can't disown some of my best friends from high school. I'm not going to. And I think that's a big piece of the emotion. But hold on. Let's say exactly what your brother said to the guy who beat him up, beat up his, his wife. Yes, you can, right? You choose not to. I choose right? not to. That's what I mean. Yeah. I, I don't want to move people out of my life because, and whatever the reasons are, right? If I'm not going to argue with someone that says that, you know, white people are better than black people or white people are better than brown people or that, that's, that's not an interesting argument for me. That person's a virulent racist and I don't want that person in my life. That's different. And I think that that's kind of what I'm saying with my own homework, not only on Facebook, but social media has been a really cool microcosm of, I think, what I needed to work on specifically, hmm. which was my emotion. <laughs> I get so mad at certain things where I would explode. If, if someone pulled up a thread from 2007 when I was arguing politics about how I thought W was a moron, that would be very different as far as the way that I come across as, as that I am today in 2021. And that's growth. And that's my, that's my thing around the emotion because my emotions are very strong. And historically, they've led me down to say and do things I disagree, not only disagree with, but I regret. You know, I, I, oh, interesting. I, but you so also, that, they also drove you to have the success that you have, right? I mean, it's just, it's, you know, like... It, no question. There's, it, passion it's, is, is good on many things. Without, I mean, like you're, see, you're, I'm the opposite of you, right? You, like, I almost always know what I think, but I don't, there are many times in my life 
and it's gotten better with age, but many times in my life where I don't know what I feel. Right? And so, so that, and that's been for me an interrogation of during some really, I mean, I've had some real pain and real challenges in my life and, you know, learning to sit. I go, wait, 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 hold on. Don't, don't just act. What is it? The phrase, and this is actually the, my favorite line in the whole book, which is at the very end of the acknowledgments. Uh, Hate is saying that his, it was his mother who, who, uh, you know, taught him, his grandmother who taught him the phrase, uh, uh, don't just do something, stand there, which I thought was, which I've heard before, but I thought in the context of the book was really great. But like, that's hard for me, right? It's hard for me to just, to, to just sit with something. Whether it's as a father, I don't want my kids to make a mistake, you know, like, no, better for them to make a mistake now. That is hard. You know, (laughs) uh, or with a colleague, like, I mean, I literally had to say to a company I advise, uh, you know, they're complaining about this and the other said, sometimes you just got to let stuff break, right? You can't, you you have to let things break uh, and then you rebuild as opposed to this endless iterations of duct tape and chewing gum. And so... But like, for me, that's my big challenge is, uh, you know, remembering to feel rather than act. Um, and that, that uh, biggest challenge, the biggest example of that was uh, I was very close with my grandmother. And when she died, uh, two days before she died, um, she was very clear up until the moment of her death. And she this is my father's mother. But she uh, she said to my mother, she, who they were very close, you know, 50 years as her daughter-in-law. And she came out to my mother as an atheist and said, I've never believed in God. I don't believe in God. I don't want to have a rabbi. I don't want to have a service. Uh, just plant me. And my mother, who is a wise woman, said, oh, no, old woman, you are not making me the messenger here. Uh, you got to tell your boys, my father and his brother, yourself. And so she did. And then she died. And then it turned out that although her stated wish two days before her death was not to have a service, that when my grandfather had died seven years earlier, they had prepaid for an hour of chapel service. So what are we going to do? Are we going to let a perfectly good hour of chapel service go to waste? <laughs> right. And so they tell me this. They call me on the phone as we're scrambling the jets to get from Oregon to Los Angeles. And they uh, said, so we do want to have a service, but in respect for her, you know, because the service is really for the living anyway. Yeah. But in respect for uh, her wishes, we, we don't want to have a rabbi do the service. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, who's going to do the service? And there's a pause. And then my father says, you are. You. <laughs> and so I'm like, I guess I've got a homework assignment. And I, you know, I mean, I'm an old events guy and I'm a good at the talking and all of that stuff. So I did the whole service and it was a great privilege, but also um, I didn't get to feel, right? I was managing everyone else's transition in this. And, and afterwards, you know, I was kind of numb and I didn't really get to reckon with the, the gap in my life uh, that, that my grandmother left um, because, again, uh, I didn't just stand there. I did something. So, so you know, I, I just think like, cool. I think it, life is really, it's just like there are just, there are no shortcuts. Uh, there aren't shortcuts no. to, 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 to spending time with people, um, you know, to asking the questions that you're asking right now. So um, it's been a great privilege to have this conversation. Well, thanks, dude. This was fantastic. And then before we go, I just got to say, I love your grandma. I never met her. But anyone who decides to claim atheism on her deathbed is oh, my oh. hero. Yeah, <laughs> that's. I mean, I, I actually believe in a, in, in a God. You know, I have a personal God. He's not the anthropomorphic dude in the sky that I was taught to raise in my Catholic school. But I just love that she stuck to her convictions on her deathbed. That's just epic. 
love yeah, it. Yeah, usually if they're a deathbed no, conversion. The opposite. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fire insurance. What, insurance. If? what yeah. if? Fuck, I got exactly. two days left. Like, okay, yeah. dude, I'm sorry. I kind of, you know, ignored you for the last 92 years, but hey. Right. I'm in. Yeah. I love you. <laughs> See <Yeah>. you soon. <laughs> right. You know? So, all right, dude, thank you so much for all this time and effort. You know, I much I appreciate you and, and you've always been a wonderful mentor for me in the business world. So thanks again for coming on. Joey, it's always a joy to talk with you and it's a privilege to have the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.